Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word and we trust and believe that your word will do effectual things in our lives. Um, it's going to accomplish that which you said to accomplish. We know that. We believe that. We trust that. But we also lack confidence, faith, and trust in that just as much as we believe it. So fill up our faith, or as your apostles said to Jesus, increase our faith. And give us confidence not in the flesh, but in your spirit and in your word. <clears throat> Use me this morning to preach your word. Be exalted, magnify Christ. And may your people be touched by your truth. Lord, this is real. This is more real than any reality. And I want your church to be happy in you. And I know that requires that we take you seriously sometimes. Oftentimes, and so help us to take this serious, but, but also to enjoy the truth and your word and each other and your gospel and the church. And do your sanctifying work this morning by the power that only you supply, which is through your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So in today's text... Uh, <clears throat> the last couple of weeks I've been talking about widows. And, and so and once you get to chapter 5, which we've been in for a few weeks, uh, it, gets, it gets very um, practical, very instructional, a lot of clarity on uh, like what, what exactly the church should do uh, logistically in particular situations and regarding particular roles and people in the church. And so... Uh, last two weeks, we, just, we kind of covered a lot of text, more text than we normally cover in two weeks, by talking about the, the role of widows and how the church interacts with widows and whatnot. Uh, now, in verse 17, Paul addresses elders, and he has already said so much about elders. Uh, but back in chapter 3, there's a lot of talk about elders, uh, and then there were a lot of talk about deacons and, and elders are brought up throughout the, the, the letter because they're the ones who are implementing these things and really Paul is writing to Timothy, but also really to the elders at the church in Ephesus. And so the elders come up a lot in this letter. And in the past, it's been kind of like what the elders' uh, requirements are, how they interact with the church, uh, how they're supposed to rule and lead, and the requirements that make them suitable for ministry. But now, in chapter 5, Paul's more focused on the relationship between the elders and the people, and mainly how that relationship is expressed in the congregation's respect toward God's appointed elders and pastors. So that's the heartbeat of the text today, is how the congregation treats the elders of the church, and that that treatment of the elders of the church is respect. That's kind of the take-home. That's ultimately what it boils down to. Now, there's a lot more to that, which we'll get into, but that's essentially where Paul's going with this, is that elders deserve a certain response from the people they serve. And we're going to see why that makes sense 
biblically. And there is a caveat to that, and is that those elders are doing well. So, in verse 17, Paul writes, let me just stop before I go there. We see this all throughout Scripture. This idea that leadership in any form, whether it's in the church or the nation of Israel or whatever, is protected by God. That, it's, that, those, that leadership, those individuals who have that role, are sealed by God, guarded by God, protected by God. And there's a requirement for the people and how they relate to that particular man or person. We're in, uh, on Wednesday nights, we're doing 1 Samuel, and 1 Samuel 20, I want to say 25, 4, 25, 6, 24, 6, somewhere in 1 Samuel, uh, <laughs> there, uh, David has Saul dead to rights, cornered in a cave, sneaks up behind him. He could kill him, and what does he do? He just cuts his robe, just a little sign to Saul, Saul, well, you were in the bathroom, I was right behind you, could have ended you, didn't. But that wasn't David's heart. David said, David literally says, I feel bad about this. And he says, how dare I harm the Lord's anointed? Now, I'm not equating elders in the church to the kings of Israel. Not a proper equation. A more appropriate equation would be elders and pastors in the church today are more relatable to the priests or the prophets of the Old Testament, not the kings. But the point that we see there is this running principle throughout Scripture where when God anoints individuals for a role of leadership over his people, there is an automatic respect and due to those people even when they're evil. Now, I'm not saying that that applies because just so you know, when we get to verse 19, which is next week, we're going to talk about what happens when the elders aren't good. Okay? So when the elders aren't good, there is an appropriate response by the congregation to deal with those elders in a biblical way. We're not going to address that today. But this point, this principle that runs all throughout scriptures is when God anoints people for a calling to lead his people, they are protected by God and required to be respected by God's people. David looks at Saul, and Saul is an evil man at this time. He's pursuing David, trying to kill David. He's jealous of David. God took his spirit away from Saul. Saul was doing evil things. And evil was in his heart. And David had probably all the justification in the world in his mind to think to himself, I I could just kill him. He's like, I can't. God anointed him. And at that point, David had already been anointed to be the next king. So he even has greater justification. Well, he might be God's anointed, but I've been anointed more recently. I could kill him and it would totally make sense. I could justify Saul's evil. I love God. He doesn't. I've been anointed after Saul was anointed. But David's heart and mind is I need to honor God's anointed call to, to these individual leaders of God's people. And so we see that principle repeated all throughout scripture. And now we get to the New Testament and Paul establishes for the church elders who rule the church. And that same principle shows up here, that there should be a respect for those men who God has called to lead his people. So we want to look at 
what the congregation's responsibility is towards its leadership, what the leadership's responsibility is towards its people, and those things affect each other. And next week, what the congregation should do in response to poor leadership. So, verse 17, Paul writes, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. First, just note that Paul says that the elders rule. This, rule, this word rule does not mean dictate. Okay? Rule has, the word rule, if I say I rule over you, that, that, that connotates kind of like a domineering dictatorship, right? Uh, but that's not what the Greek word rule means. It really means to preside over. It carries this meaning of guidance, like an invocation of wisdom to guide and the ability to effectually direct the church toward holiness. Ruling isn't a firm hand and a whip and uh, domination and dictatorship. It is a loving guidance, a shepherding. So this ruling of the elders is not a kingship, it's not a dictatorship, it's the shepherding that though at times may have to be stern and firm, is mostly a loving directing toward Christ and an upholding of sound doctrine and a decision-making process that aligns with Scripture. And he also says that these elders who rule, and then what's the next word? Well. So it's not just elders who rule, it's elders who rule well, which an elder who rules well is an elder who is obedient to Scripture. They not only obey Scripture themselves, but they teach Scripture and they teach obedience to Scripture, and they teach sound doctrine, and they guide and direct, and they, they fit all of the requirements in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7 of elder requirements. So they, they qualify on all of those grounds, so they're automatically already holy or godly, righteous men have proved it in their life. They're clearly not perfect, but they are good, godly men called by God to help lead the church and they do it well. Now, what is ruling well look like? Well, to be quite honest, we could explore that forever because there's a variety of different ways that ruling well, you know, I, I think we, if we all took a moment and, and, and I gave you a slip of paper and a pen and said, write down in one sentence what a ruling the church well for an elder would look like, there would be, everybody's sentences would be different. We'd all have different perspectives, different way of wording it, different idea of what it looks like. And so there are, and most of you would probably be right in whatever you say. You know, um, he's a loving, caring shepherd. Um, he teaches me sound doctrine. Uh, he leads me well. Uh, he prays for me. He serves me. He sacrifices for me. He gives to me. All the, we can all come with the, There's a lot of different ways that an elder rules well. But essentially, it boils down to an elder that rules well is an elder who rules according to the word of God. They follow God's word, they teach God's word, they direct according to God's word, they counsel according to God's word, they teach God's word, and they stand convicted on God's word. They stand up for their people, they love their, their, the people that God has called them to lead, they shepherd them, they care for them, they serve them, they give to them, they meet them in their need, they pursue their hearts. I could go on and on with all these things that would qualify for well-ruling elders. 
And we could go on and on and create this list of hundreds of different pers- uh, 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 ideas of what it means to be a good elder. And I guarantee you, if we had a list of 100, there's going to be quite a few in that list that every elder is going to look at and go, oops, <laughs> I don't do that one very well. So we're not talking about perfect men. We're talking about men who take the word of God seriously and sacrifice in their life to lead the church well. And one of the sacrifices they make is they will give up sin to follow the word so that, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.27, that I beat my body into submission so that after preaching the gospel, I myself am not disqualified. So those elders who rule well, Paul says, should be considered worthy of double honor. Now, this idea of double honor does not mean that good elders should receive exactly, you know, double. It's not a, it's not a science thing. It's not a math thing. It's not a perfect equation thing. He's not saying whatever you, you're doing for your elders, double it exactly. Not his meaning. The idea of double honor is uh, that whether it be financial compensation or simply just double the respect, it is Paul encouraging the church to recognize the difficulty and intensity of labor required for an elder to rule well. Paul knows how challenging it is to lead the church with all of its sin and there's poor doctrine that needs correction and it needs sanctification. And once those things are corrected, they simply rise again in someone else or new people come in and it shows up in them. And then those who the the elders have already served and and taught and lead, those people need to be maintained. And so you've got new people with new issues and older people with the same issues. And you got then, then once those people mature and grow into new you know, stages of life, then the, the elders also have to help those people maintain that stage and move to whatever's next for them. So it's a, a constant connection with the people of God, serving them and helping them. And to be quite honest... In every church, there's not every church, but in a lot of churches, there's really just never enough elders to do that job most effectively. And it's hard. It's hard to make that work. And, and so that's what Paul is recognizing is that this double honor is, is a respect. There are endless hours of investing in people and relationships, sitting with the lonely, praying with the sick, studying the word, preparing to teach, actually teaching and actually preaching, serving, loving, giving, counseling, rebuking, exhorting, encouraging, and even dying, yes, dying for their people, if necessary. All while they themselves have their own spiritual growth to focus on and their own family's spiritual growth to focus on, all for the sake of Jesus' own precious possession that he calls his bride. If the church is able to recognize the amount of time and effort and sacrifice that is required of an elder who rules well, then Paul says they should and will consider him worthy of double honor, meaning they will respect his call, honor him for that call, and treat him accordingly in a variety of different ways, not to the praise of the elder himself, but to the glory of God in Christ to use such an instrument, a person, to do such effectual work in the church. As, as Paul says in Colossians 3, we don't do this for the praise of man. I don't, I'm not an elder. I don't lead. I don't preach. I don't teach for you to praise me. I do it so Christ looks beautiful and glorified in your life. I do it for the exaltation of the gospel of Christ. 
Paul tells me in Colossians 3, I don't work for man. That's wasted energy. I work for the glory of God. All my labor is for Christ. And what is, if I'm going to labor for Christ, what does Christ tell Mark to do? Specifically as an elder? To love his people, serve his people, give to his people, sacrifice for his people, and so on and so on and so on and so forth. Teach his people. Guide his people. Lead his people. That's just, that's just my calling. It's just a role. It's different than your role. It doesn't make me any different than you. No elder is more special than anyone else. No preacher or pastor is greater than anyone else. This is probably my main issue with famous, well-known, renowned pastors is they're treated like superstars and they themselves are godly men and they hate that too. But God has called them to a unique and different position where their voice is heard by thousands or maybe millions and that's God's unique calling on their life and it's fantastic. And because of that, I get taught sound doctrine by great pastors and preachers that I've never met. Some of who are even dead. So... If the church does recognize those elders for ruling well, then what will that double honor look like practically? Well, financial compensation is part of the equation. And we'll get to that in verse 18. But, but that's only part of it. And that's not the primary focus in any of this. But when the church recognizes their elders' efforts toward your temporal and eternal, so your earthly and eternal benefit by serving and giving and sacrificing and training and living for you and dying for you, then they would, the congregation would then show that elder a greater level of respect. Or another way of saying it is that they would show him intentional respect. Like, that's the concept of respect, that respect is intentional. Right? Different people have different perspectives on you know, what respect is. Some people give somebody else automatic respect and you get my respect automatically until you lose it. And some people say, you don't get my respect until you earn it. What's right? Uh, the, probably a more biblical perspective is you get my respect until you lose it. It's probably a more biblical perspective. Um, but that's not the point. The point is we are commanded specifically as a congregation to respect our elders. And if you're thinking, well, what about you, Mark? I have to respect Brian. I have to listen to Brian. I have to obey Brian. He's an elder. He is just, a, just as much, his authority over you as an elder in God's church is the same authority he has over me. The difference is we're both elders and we unite together to make things work and make decisions work together. So if you're wondering like, well, well, Mark's the pastor, he's an elder, and he's preaching on respecting elders and pastors, which is his role, then what about him? I have to do the same thing. I got to listen to Brian. Okay? And sometimes I don't want to. <laughs> but I have to. We, you think Brian and I agree on everything? No. You know how many hours we've spent in my office debating on what we should do with certain things? And the number of times that Brian's like, we can't do that, Mark. And I'm like, come on, Brian, please. And he's like, no, it's got to be this way. So, so like, I have to listen to him. I have to follow him. I have to submit to him. And I love it. I love it. When I was coaching basketball, um, I got to, I was the head coach for the junior high for years. And while I was the head coach for the junior high, I was, I was also the assistant coach for the varsity. I loved it because my entire life is leadership in church. 
And so I'm always in this position of leadership. I've been in it for so long. And I only have like a few elders to submit to. And still there's an equality there in eldership that changes the dynamic of our submission. But when I got to coach basketball, Rich, uh, who is a godly Christian man, uh, lives in the area, goes to Alliance Church. Um, he is the head coach. And I got to just, and I told him how wonderful it was. He's a godly man. I love him. I totally respect him. I loved submitting to him. I told him, I said, Rich, I spend my whole life leading, leading and leading. You know how wonderful it is to show up at basketball practice and I'm just the guy who's here to help and you're in charge and I have to submit to you? And he's like, what do you want to do? I was like, whatever you want to do, Rich. Well, I'll follow you wherever you go and do whatever you want to do. And I'll, you know, I love that because I got to do what you're supposed to do. I got to express the joy that comes with submitting to someone else. And to be honest, when you're in constant leadership, it's kind of a relief to just step down and go, I don't have to be in charge of basketball, you know? So I think when you're in a constant role of submission, Sometimes maybe it gets a little weary, burns you out a little bit, maybe a little arduous, like on repeat, constantly in submission and submission. And I'm telling you from my perspective that it is a joy when you step into it. So if you're losing that joy of submission, there needs to be a refreshment of that joy. And so this idea of intentional respect, it's like... I think we start with respect for our elders and pastors. And so it's like an automatic for a lot of Christians. And then because it's automatic, and for many Christians who've been Christians for a long time, it's so automatic that it's kind of a rote activity, you know? Yeah, I respect my pastor. Yeah, I respect my elders. But I think there needs to be a a more significant intentionality to what that respect looks like. So what does intentional Respect. And what I mean by intentional is putting forth concerted effort to show your elders respect. And what does that look like? And if you think I'm going to say things like buy him gifts and, <laughs> you know, if you did, Skittles are probably his favorite gift. Um, it's not or, or or give him, you know, pay him more or, or something like that. Like that. Those are practical things that are not really Paul's concern here, okay? Intentional respect means intentionally putting forth a concerted effort to do a particular thing. And what does that intentional, uh, concerted effort to respect your elders look like? It is obedience. You want to respect the elders in your church? Obey God. That is... That will show your elders and your pastors that they feel respected. When I teach the Bible to you and you hear it, love it, learn it, and apply it, nothing makes me happier. Nothing. I mean, parents, you know this is true. You have children. You've seen it. How frustrating it is when your kids don't obey, right? And their obedience hurts and it's hard and it's, 
It's, it, you know, it's difficult. It creates, it, it's not just hard to see them disobey. It's, it's hard because their disobedience leads to so many other problems and you see the root problem in that. And it's just very convoluted and difficult and challenging and it breaks your heart. You want them to be healthy and good. And, and so when they disobey, it's like, ah, it's frustrating. And then you're like, I've told you this so many times. You still don't obey. Ah, you know, it's frustrating. But when your kids are submissive and obedient and respectful and joyful in their obedience, it's just like, oh my gosh, am I a good parent? (laughs) And it feels good, right? It feels good to be that kind of parent. It feels good. Nothing's more satisfying than watching your children love the Lord and, and love you and respect you and show that. So, It's the same thing as an elder in the church. Nothing satisfies my heart more as a pastor than to see you obeying God's word. And nothing breaks my heart more than to see you not. So, if the elder is ruling well, that means he is appropriately teaching the word and leading the church biblically. And thus, their obedience, your obedience, is not to the elders, it's to Christ. If I tell you, the Lord says, do this, and you say, or you do that thing, you're technically obeying me. But the reality that we all recognize is you're obeying God. It's his command, not mine. I'm just the one who's communicating it. And God also communicates, it's not just me you're obeying, church. It is the elders that you're obeying. It's important that you do because it is important for the sake of the gospel. This is so important. For the sake of the gospel, you have to have real human beings in your real life who you have to Submit directly under. And whose words that come out of their mouth, you have to obey those actual human beings. Yes, we recognize the commands that those elders give are God's commands. So you are technically obeying God, not just people. But God clarifies here, yeah, but you have to obey those individual human beings that I call elders in place into that, into that role in the church. Why? Because the entire structure of the gospel is predicated on roles and authorities and submission to authorities. We see this in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says, there's God, and then there's Christ. And Christ submits to God. And then there's husbands, and husbands submit to Christ. And then there's wives, and wives submit to husbands. And then there's children, and children submit to parents. That is the structure of reality, of families, of life, and of the church. That every human being has another human being that you get to, or have to, submit to Because that's an expression of the gospel. So what you get to practice by submitting to your elders is you get to practice what the apostles practiced. Walking on this earth with Jesus Christ, the apostles had a real human being, their Lord and Savior Christ himself, to physically, in his presence, obey his very words. And now his words are in this book. And now your elders act like Christ. They are not Christ. 
They act like Christ by saying Jesus' words and walking on this earth with you just like he did with the apostles. And you get to experience what the early church got to experience or the apostles got to experience, which is walking with the voice of God through the elder. That doesn't make the elders more special or, or a better person, just a unique call, a specific role where they are commanded to communicate the words of Jesus himself. So you have to have this real physical human being in your life who communicates like Christ to you so you have that Christ-like gospel experience of submitting to him. Which means, ultimately, if you listen to your elders, obey them, and submit to them, you're obeying Christ and you're submitting to Christ. And when you do that, that is respect Not only to God, not only to Christ, not only to the Holy Spirit, but to your elder and to the rest of your church. Because if you are disrespectful to your elders, then their life gets harder and that affects your fellow brothers and sisters in the church. And Hebrews 13, 17 verifies this. The author writes, Obey your leaders and submit to them. So that's the command. Obey your leaders and submit to them. There's two commands there. Obey and submit. Now this is where Paul's words in 1 Timothy 5, 17 become really important because he says, Let the elders who rule well, because a non-well-ruling elder or a poor ruling elder can take this this requirement for you to obey and submit to them and abuse it, okay? But an elder who rules well will not abuse your requirement to obey them and submit to them. So here's the command, obey and submit, obey your leaders and submit to them. And now the author of Hebrews explains why this command is good for the church to follow. He says, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So the elders recognize that they carry a great responsibility and that they not only speak for God from his word and they not only have to direct the church and love the bride and shepherd their lives and sacrifice for their good, but that he also must give an account before God for the condition of the local bride that the pastor was given to steward well. I have to stand before God and I'm held accountable for you. So yeah, I'm going to get involved in your life. And if you don't like it, too bad. Because <laughs> I'm doing it. Because I have to stand before God. I have to. Now, Jesus does the same thing, okay? Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. It's about husbands and wives, but we see this very important correlation between elders and the church. It says in uh, Ephesians 5, 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So note that Paul is now going to equate the role of husband to his wife as the same relationship as Christ to the church. He is the husband, we are the bride. Christ is the husband, we are the bride. And how Christ treats the church is how the husband must treat his wife. And also, how Christ is responsible in verses 26 and 27, how Christ is responsible to the church, so also the elders are responsible for their local church. 
So what Christ does for his bride in this text is also what a well-ruling elder should do for his church. So what is it? Verse 26. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself. That's Christ presenting the church to himself. Or so that the elder might present the church to Christ in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Just as Christ does that for the church, so also the pastor and the elders are to make the same exact concerted effort for his church to sanctify her, sanctify you with the word so that when you are presented before Christ, the elder who is held accountable for your spiritual well-being can say with Christ, look at how perfect they are. Wrinkle-free, holy, blameless, and without blemish. Even then, the good elder recognizes that the sanctifying work is genuinely the Holy Spirit living out the promised perfections that God created for us to walk in before the foundation of the world. That's Ephesians 2.10. But nevertheless, that good elder also understands that in God's sovereignty, because God sovereignly ordained that path of righteousness for the church, God sovereignly caused that righteousness for the church, and a good elder also understands that God not only understands not only in God's sovereignty, but, but, and, and not only that God gets the glory for causing the church's righteousness, but he gets the glory for also establishing the elders who cause that righteousness because God not only ordains the end, which is the perfection of the church, but he also ordains the means, which is the sanctification of the church through good leadership. So a good elder recognizes their role in God's system and that it is all God's work. So that it ensures the elder and the church he's leading gives God all the glory. Now, I have two stars on my shirt. The red one is because (laughs) was, was given to me by a little girl to this morning. She came up to me and she put it on my shirt and she said, that's for your preaching. And I was like, am I getting this for being a good preacher? She's like, yep. And then later she came up to me, she gave me the blue one. She's like, that's for your singing. And she said, and after you preach, I'll give you a big one. (laughs) And let me tell you, nothing feels like respect, but a couple of stickers from a little kid. I'm telling you. So uh, I feel like like I know that that's such a little thing. That is like a childlike faith in God to look up to the people who lead you and go, I just, you know, this child just has to, has to express this love to me, you know? And it's, I love that. And, and, and so like uh, this concept of leadership in the church is about relationships. It's not about like, Elders and leaders are in a different plane and an elevated, you know, um, um, Hitler, when he was, whatever he was doing, uh, leading, if you can call it that, Germany, when he would speak to the people, 
he would put himself very high. Kind of like when the Pope comes out, you know, in the Vatican and whatever, and he's way, way up there and looks down on the people. And this conveyance, this visual of Hitler being above the people was intentional. He did that on purpose to, to remind the people that I'm greater than you. You're my subjects. That's not biblical leadership. That's the opposite. And obviously we would never use Hitler as an example of good leadership. But he's a great example of dictatorship. To, you know, I don't even like the concept of being on a platform when you're preaching. But we do it for pragmatic reasons because it's easier and you can see the pastor easier or whatever. I get that. That's fine. But this idea of being higher or greater or better or more equipped or more unique or whatever uh, is not necessarily biblical. Maybe more equipped depending on the person. But this concept of leadership is about relationships. I mean, what does God do when Israel's wandering the desert? Make a giant tent. And then the rest of the nations, the rest of the nations, all of their gods live up in the rocks and up in the mountains. You know why? Because the people can't get up there. They can't reach those gods. And they're like, well, if these gods are real, they probably live up in the mountains. So we look up and we worship up and the gods live up in the mountains. And if we want to worship them, we have to go on this journey up to the mountain to meet, God, meet our gods. And our God, the real God, goes, make a tent and camp the people and put the tent right in the middle. And then my presence is going to consume that tent and you will see my presence go up in smoke. And you'll know that the Lord, your God, is with you. That's awesome. Like, that is God's way of leading from within. Relationship. Involved. Inside. Not above. Not apart. I got a picture in my office. It was given to me when I first moved here by Jamie and Amy Sotis, who went to church here. They moved to California. So they're no longer here. But... um, Amy gave me the photo and said, I think it was like up in her parents' house. Her parents gave it to her or something. So it's in my office. You can go look at it anytime. By the way, you can go in and out of my office whenever you want. And, and you can go in there and it's uh, kind of above the sink next to the bookshelf in my office. <clears throat> it's a picture of a bunch of sheep. And then there's just a shepherd. That's all it is. And the shepherd is not in front of the sheep. He's behind the sheep. Guiding from the rear, leading from behind, because that's how he keeps an eye on the people. You know, that's how he serves the people. He gets himself in a position as a good elder to be able to see the lives of the people, to interact with those lives, to, it's a lot easier to be behind and see what's going on in that life and then to step forward into that life and serve that need. It's a lot harder to follow somebody who's way ahead of you and is moving faster than you because they're excited about being a leader and they're excited about what you're following or maybe they're not leading well and maybe they're leading in the wrong direction and then you gotta follow and then the people get spread out and the moment the people or the sheep get spread out, what happens? The wolves attack. And so the shepherd gets into the lives of the people. That's what good leadership is about, relationships. So we go back to Hebrews 13, 17. And we find out more about this double, what this double honor looks like practically in the church. Middle of verse 17, it says, let them do this. What is this? Uh, keeping a watch over your soul because they have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. 
The author is literally saying to the church that it is best for them to obey and submit to their elders because it is good for them. Why is it good for them? Because when they obey and submit to their elders, they make the work of the elder easy for easier for a variety of reasons. Even when the work is easier, it will always be sacrificial. It will always be arduous. So there is never anything easy about pastoral ministry. And that is why the command here is that the church be obedient to the word, to Christ, to the elders. So to ensure that the leaders are not overly burdened by the church's sin. That's what the author's point is. When the elders have to deal with constant disobedience in the church, it consumes all their time and effort that would otherwise be spent on the continued sanctification of growing healthy Christians. Your continued obedience also ensures that there is much less sin in general for the elders to confront and rebuke and exhort and kill. And many less fires for the leadership to have to put out and deal with, opening them up to spending their time feeding you the truth, serving you well, loving you joyfully, and making their sacrifice for you not in vain. Essentially, the more obedient you are to the word of God and the word that they preach and teach, the more joyful you will be because you will have leaders who are less burdened by sin and thus more able and better able to serve you with gladness in their own hearts versus serving you while their gas tank is on empty because they spend all their time dealing with disobedient and defiant church members. So double honor means these well-ruling elders are well-respected, and that respect shows up most profoundly in obedience and submission. Meaning a good elder who rules well can say what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That makes Christ the, 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 the priority. That makes Christ the true shepherd we're all following. And that makes the elder a representation of Christ. An imitation of Christ. An example of Christ-likeness for you to follow. That's a heavy burden to carry for any man. And what Hebrews 13, 17 is, says, is saying is don't make it any harder than it already is. Now back to 1 Timothy 5, 17. And Paul says uh, that we are to consider those who, elders who rule well worthy of double honor. And he says, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now this does not mean that an elder who does not preach and teach isn't worthy of double honor, but rather that those who labor in preaching and teaching put forth an exerted and noticeable effort to affirm the church in Christ by bolstering up their emotional, mental, physical, and spiritual needs through the declaration and proclamation of God's word. Because their labor is so vital to God's purposes for his church, and they are so noticeable in that they are teaching, the respect they deserve or the double honor they deserve, is even more appropriate since it is the highest office and role in the entire universe. To be called by God to speak for God and declare that which the Old Testament prophets declared, thus saith the Lord, and then preach and teach and live and give the very words of God himself with the authority of God that he grants to that particular role. There is no greater responsibility in the world. And yes, I'm aware that I am talking about my very own role. And I have a hard time saying that in front of people, but I believe it. 
Therefore, I say it because it is true. What greater calling, what more vital or important role in the entire world than to be those called by God to be his Christ-like leaders of his very people? Their labor in preaching and teaching is not only cause for double honor, but James 3.1 says it is also cause for greater accountability on the elder. James writes, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach would be judged with greater strictness. So along with great respect comes great accountability for those who are well-ruling elders. And, and this also should inform you as to why elders who are convicted about their stance on biblical truth and sound doctrine hold those convictions even in the face of great opposition even when the opposition comes from inside the church, because those convicted teachers, preachers, pastors, and elders who know that they must stand before God one day and give an account not only for the spiritual well-being of their church, but also for their stand against all who oppose the truth of God's word. Meaning, a good elder will not pander to the wants of their people, but rather will hold their ground on God's word for the sake of God's people, whether they followed or not. Paul had the same experience and was often heartbroken when those who faithfully followed him later abandoned him because the requirement of following the Lord's commands through Paul's teaching was too much. And it hurt Paul. It broke his heart. See, it's in Philippians 3. Those who were once following us are now enemies of the cross. He says, I say this now even in tears. But a good elder knows it's worth it as they will be able to joyfully stand before God one day and say that they sought only to please the Lord by teaching and preaching and standing upon his word. A good elder does that and a good church respects him for it. Now verse 18 says, For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Now, the meaning of this verse is essentially that those who labor in preaching and teaching should receive whatever fair compensation is appropriate for their work. This is not strictly a reference to pastors getting paid or how much he gets paid. If, if, he, if he's worthy of double honor, that does not mean he should get double the salary. All right, so double honor doesn't mean double pay. It means that the respect that he is due should also be reflected in all areas of the church, including how well he is compensated. One of the reasons this is vital is that the pastor, who is not fairly compensated, is less able to provide for his family, incurring in his life volatile uh, environment at home, thus stealing his joy and freedom to serve the church, making him less capable of sanctifying the body of Christ through his sacrificial ministry because he has to sacrifice more at home to make ends meet there and to keep his family happy and to, and to take care of them spiritually and all, those other, all the other ramifications that come through that, thus making him less able to sacrifice more in the church. And long-term, the church won't grow as quickly or as healthily. This text from Deuteronomy 25.4 you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Now, this is a reference to, so Paul's defending his reason for giving double honor to the elders. And he defends it with this Deuteronomy text. Don't muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. It's a reference to ox, re oxen, reaping from its own work. Okay, that's the concept. The oxen reaping from their work. An ox would be latched to a pole 
And as it walked, it would walk in a circle because the pole kept it attached. So it would walk around this pole attached to it by the neck or by the body somehow. And the floor would be filled with grain and the grain needed to be threshed out or separated from the stalk. So the grain and stalk needed to be pulled apart. And by the ox walking on it, the grains would get separated and the good grain would fall to the lower threshing floor. And the, and the unusable stocks would get forked and thrown out by the workers. And when that, when that other unusable stalk got thrown out, that's called the chaff. And as it was thrown, the chaff would get blown away by the wind. So I'm, I'm bringing that up because that is a biblical imagery that is used over and over again in the Old Testament. And it's usually a reference to judgment. So the chaff being blown away by the wind is typically a reference to God destroying people like the wind is blown away by the chaff. So also those who are evil will be blown away by the Lord. That's kind of the concept. But that's not the point here. The point here is that the ox walks on the grain and then uh, when treading the threshing floor, they would sometimes be muzzled. And the reason they were muzzled was to prevent them from eating the good grain off of the floor because the farmers are like, that's my grain. I don't want the ox eating it. And what God does is he creates a law in Deuteronomy 25.4 and says not to muzzle the ox. Why? So that it can reap the benefits of its own labor by eating good grain that it worked hard to separate. It is the ox reaping the benefit of its own labor. Now, Scripture also teaches us in 2 Peter, or maybe it's 1 Peter, and one of the Peters, <laughs> that, that these things, this concept was not made for the ox in ancient Near East for Israel's sake. God did not write Deuteronomy 25.4 for the ox. He wrote it for the New Testament, New Covenant elders of the church. God wrote that law thousands of years before the church ever started strictly, primarily, clearly, and exactly for this reason. So that he could use this example later for the elders. That much is explicitly clear to us in scripture. And that is the application Paul has given to those who labor in preaching and teaching. That such labor necessitates that the pastor also benefits directly from his own work. Meaning, he pours his life into the people. The people obey the Lord and supply for the church. And the pastor receives those supplications as his reward for his labor. He eats from his own labor. He provides for his family from the labor that he gives to the body of Christ. And what does that look like practically in the church? The pastor teaches the church to be faithful to God in all things, including financial responsibility and giving, along with all the other godly disciplines. The people practice these godly disciplines, and thus they supply for the needs of the church, all the needs, not just taking care of the staff and the pastors and the elders or whatever, but taking care of all the needs of the church and all the ministries and all the services. And the fruit of, their pra- of your practice, godly discipline, are then immediately received by those who labor in preaching and teaching. So these good pastors are not only fairly compensated financially, they are also compensated for their work by reaping the joy of their labor in the spiritual fruit of the very people they are shepherding, serving, loving, and teaching. So as an elder and pastor... I am fairly compensated financially and 
fairly compensated in enjoying the fruit of your life. Your growth in Christ is like payment to me. Now, it's also one of the most difficult roles to have. Uh, and I think a lot of jobs can be like this at times. Um, well, you know, all jobs are different and they all have different kind of results, right? But a lot of people go to work and they produce things and they you know, do things and there's fruit, like there's evidence of success in their job, right? Um, they finished the project, the project was approved. Done, ching, success, I was good today. Um, I have a product, I sold the product, success, done. Okay, ministry, there's no box that gets checked in the middle of your life that says, you did a really good job there. It's like, you work, and 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 you never know when you're going to see results. You never know when you're going to see fruit. You never know when it's going to produce what we would call success or biblically fruitful results. You just never know. And some pastors and elders spend their entire life serving churches and never see results. And God's like, I promise you these, there are results and the reward is eternally wonderful. Just keep being faithful, elder and pastor. Just keep doing it and there'll be a reward for you one day. And in faithfulness, those pastors continue to serve. But that's the harsh reality of ministry. Sometimes you just don't see results. But when I do, Watching you guys grow, learn, watching you be humbled by God's word humbles me before God's word. You have no idea how much your fruitful growth in the word of God makes me grow. You're serving me just as much as I'm serving you. So you could be sitting there going, I'm needy, I'm needy, I'm needy. Serve me, Pastor Mark, serve me. I need the word, teach me. And then I teach you. Uh, I need help, pray for me, so I pray for you. I need, I need, I need, I need, I need, I need, I need. And then I give and I give and I give and I give. And then I watch you grow and learn and you become sanctified and fruit starts coming off of your tree. And I see these big delicious apples of spiritual fruit growing off your tree. And I just walk up to them and I pick them off and take a big bite and go, I love you so much. It's so satisfying. To watch you guys grow because it's not just growth that I care about. It is your joy in the Lord that satisfies me. When you genuinely grow, and this is one of the key components. To, as, I, as I shepherd the church, I notice this. Is there are people who look like they're growing, act like they're growing, pretend like they're growing, but aren't actually growing. And the key distinction is their joy is false or there is no joy. And, what, and I don't mean... Like every, you know, joy like, hey, that means I walk around happy and smiling all day. Look, I'm a good Christian. I'm happy and I'm smiling. That's not joy. That's just happiness. Happiness is fleeting and momentary. Joy is deep and rooted in Christ. And Christ is an immovable foundation in your heart and in your life. And so your joy is an immovable foundation in your heart and in your life. Which means when life is hard and difficult and challenging... From little challenges to extremely difficult challenges. To, for, for, from, from oops, I stubbed my toe to my son just died. That in Christ you are unshakably satisfied in who he is. And that is real joy that comes from a real God and a real gospel from the real word of God. From a God who loves you so deeply that he will 
firm up that foundation of joy in you, regardless of what's going on in your life. And that only happens in people who love him and follow him. And so when I see life get a little shaky for you, and I hear things like, it doesn't matter, this is hard, Pastor Mark, but I love the Lord, and he is good, and he is my firm foundation, and I am satisfied in him, and he's got a plan, and I'm going to trust him. I'm just like, I just want to kiss you. That must be why Paul said, greet each other with a holy kiss. He was like, I just couldn't help. He probably just wanted to kiss everybody. Because it's so satisfying to watch you guys grow in the Lord. And I see one of the key distinctions of growth is true joy that is unshakable and immovable regardless of what's going on in your life. That you are satisfied in Christ. Period. That, that is what I'm aiming for. And I can't produce that joy in you. I can't be like, come on, be happy, and then like try to make you happy, and oh, let me try to organize your life so it's happy. No, that's not, what I, that's not what you need from me. All you need from me is this. This is all you need. I'll speak this. I will speak this. I'm not special. I have no special pronunciation. Paul himself admits, I didn't come to you with fancy words. I don't know how to talk. Why does Paul say he came to them without the ability to, to talk smoothly and talk well? Number one, all the orators in his time convinced people through their smooth talk. Paul came in and said, I don't have smooth talk. And you still were convinced. Why? To show you the power of the Holy Spirit in the gospel of Christ. To show you that it was Christ who changed your heart, not my fancy words. There's nothing I say that's going to make you happy. But this book will. This truth will. These are the very words of God himself to your heart and to your mind. And until you believe them, you will never be satisfied. You will seek it in everything in this life and everything on this earth. And you will pretend to be a Christian. And you'll try to be a Christian. You'll go to church occasionally. You'll try some Christian things. Tell people you are a Christian. Kind of, you know, sit on the fence. You know what sitting on the fence is? Hatred toward God. James chapter 4. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. That's what James says. You cannot sit on the fence. You cannot have one foot in the world and one foot with God. You will be too satisfied in the world to enjoy God. You'll be too satisfied in God to enjoy the world. You will never be happy. You'll be broken and split. You'll live a disastrous life. You'll end up being 45, 65, or 85 years old living a miserable life. Until you trust in Christ and get into his word and let his word change your life and give you that immense, unshakable joy that cannot be moved because it is in Christ who cannot be moved in you. That's all I'm aiming at. And so all I can do is teach you the word and let the word do that work in you. I can't force it into you. I can't make you happy. I can't create joy in you. But I can give you the guy who does. And that's my responsibility. I have more to say. I'm not going to, though. <laughs> so we're going to leave it there, and I'll pick this up next week, or we'll just jump ahead. Either way. I want you to understand, because this is a unique opportunity that I have to talk about my particular role in this church. And I wanted to do so in a way that wasn't about me. Because it's not about me or Brian. It's about the elders in the church and you. Okay? I could die tomorrow and everything I said today is true. Okay? This isn't about particular individual people. It's about the role. Okay? 
You may not always be at Grace Church. I may die. Brian may die. I don't know. Whatever. Or we have new elders. It doesn't matter who the men are. It's about God's word telling us these things. And and so always hold your elders accountable. Always seek to respect them. And the greatest respect you can ever show your elders, the way to show them double honor. And Paul does ta- is talking about financial compensation. Is to make sure they're fairly compensated. Not, again, not double compensated. That's not what double honor means. But that they're fairly compensated. And that they not only reap the benefit of your participation in the church by giving. So that they can take care of their families and therefore serve you freely. But more importantly, you will satisfy your elders and also Christ when you're obedient to him. And that's all your elders ever want from you. Now, I know you're not going to be perfect. I know you're not always going to obey. I I know that. I'm not always going to obey. None of us are going to always obey. We're all going to sin. We're all going to make mistakes. We're all going to fail. That's why you were given shepherds. Because lambs and sheep, I mean, I just saw this video the other day, this sheep, oh my gosh, it was so funny. This sheep was in a really, you guys have probably seen this, in a really tight ditch. The ditch was about as wide as the sheep. And he was like stuck in there. And his legs are out and this shepherd walks up and there's this on video and the shepherd just yanking and yanking, finally pulls the sheep out. And the sheep runs in a circle and goes right back into the ditch. <laughs> I was like, man, is that not the Christian life sometimes? Right? When you're just like, oh, thanks for getting me out of there. Boom, right back into it. Why? It's a habit. It's a rut. You need consistent leadership in your life to help you work out those things. A lot of you guys have addictions or things that you're stuck on or challenged with or, or struggling with. Listen, don't hide that stuff. Bring it out. Let's work it out. I don't care what it is. It doesn't matter what it is. It's sin. That's all that matters. Let's deal with it. Let's work on it. Let's power through that with the gospel of Christ. Let's have changed lives that truly satisfy. If you are, if you are sitting on the fence, this is just, if you, are, if you are sitting on the fence with God right now, I just pray that he pushes you. That's all I'm, that's all I'm praying. You will never be happy. If you are teetering between this like kind of pretending to be a Christian, kind of not, kind of satisfied with Christianity, but kind of not, kind of doing all the worldly things I want to do, but also calling myself a Christian and doing a couple Christian things here and there, making me feel better about myself, that is getting you nowhere. And the only thing that's going to change your life is if God quite literally pushes you off the fence and says, you're on my side now. Because if if he doesn't do that now, there'll be a day when he pushes you to the other side. And that side is filled with judgment. And I don't want that for any of you. So I'm praying and pleading that you get off the fence. And get on the side of the word of God and get into the word of God and join us in this adventure called spiritual growth. Which is a journey that requires each other. And in that process, trust your elders who love you and care for you. And if you want them to be satisfied leaders who love serving you, then we're not asking that you be perfect. We're asking that you submit to the word of God. Let's pray. 
Lord, we love you. We thank you. We trust you. You're such a good God. We, even the elders, are just sinful men who are just trying to figure out life too. Maybe they're at a different place, enables them to lead uh, a different degree of maturity and knowledge maybe, but, but ultimately um, just another sinful being used by you for your glory in the church. So help us all to fill each of our unique individual roles in a way that satisfies us. And for those who are sitting on the fence, God, push them now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.